Hey, this is Denez. And this is Franny. And you're listening to Roll Call, a versus special series on the past, future, and present of Black poetry and poetics. So, Denez, this is a new thing that is coming out of Versus, the first, like, mini-series limited edition situation happening in between the seasons. And I know that we talked back like last year when we came up with the idea for Roll Call. But um, yeah, why don't you catch me up on what you all have been doing working on this project over the last year? For sure. Well, first off, shout out to Franny Choi, pillar in the Black community for coming up with this idea. (laughs) (laughs) Once upon a Zoom call long ago. Okay. We definitely came up with it together. You birthed it. I helped doula it. And then a lot of other people raised it. Uh, But what happened was we had a national call uh, or an international call that went out asking for uh, folks to send us their ideas for any special one hour podcast um, dealing with some aspect of Black poetry and the future of it, the past of it, or what's going on with it today. We had about 20 finalists. And then along with past Black versus guests, we selected this top six who got the opportunity to have a session with the amazing, amazing, amazing Jenna Wortham um, and myself and got paired with a producer to bring their own special, unique, conversation about Black poetics to life. And that's what we're going to hear for the next six episodes here on the Versus channel is each of these lovely conversations, each with their own set of hosts, their own set of questions and curiosities. And y'all, I am so excited for y'all to hear them. These folks um, really knocked it out of the park with these conversations. Shout out to all the producers that we worked with on this. Shout out to Itzel Blancas, who was like such a champion and a hero <laughs> on this project. Um, so I don't even feel right saying that like we worked really hard because all these folks worked really hard and got down in the dirt. We're just really excited for y'all to hear these six really bright, really diverse, really unique conversations that these poets and scholars just had apparently so much fun on. It's really a delight. And we just get to sit back and kick it and listen with the rest of y'all. So let's go ahead and dive into our first in the Roll Call series, which is What the Water Carries by Jasmine Mendez, Daryl Alejandro Jones, and Reina de Leon. These are three Black and Latino, Afro-Latino, Black Latino. They're going to get into the specificities of those particular breakdowns for you in this episode who got together to have a conversation about what Afro-Latinidad means to their poetry and to poetry as a whole. It's such a brilliant, wonderful conversation. Please get lost in the waves of this conversation. Such a beautiful piece right here. So happy to have this one in the Roll Call series. So here are these three poets produced by the wonderful... Send Pimentel, this is what the water carries. Remembering where it used to be, all water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. Writers, Writers are, are like that. that. Remembering where we were, what valley we ran through, what banks were like. The light that was there and the route back to our original place. It is emotional memory. What, what the, the nerves, nerves and the skin, skin remember, as well as how it appeared. And a and rush, and a rush of, imagination of imagination is our is flooding. Our flooding. Is our flooding. Tony, Tony Morrison, Morrison tells, tells us in The Sight of Memory. 
Hey, bienvenidos. Hey, how you doing? ¿Cómo están? Buenas tardes. Hey, everybody. Bienvenidos. I'm so glad you could join us for this episode. Wepa. I am Rena León, and I'm so delighted to be with you all. And I am Daryl Alejandro Holness, and I am ready for a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jasmine Mendez, uh, calling in here from Houston, Texas. And today, me and my fellow poets are planning to discuss the complexities of Afro-Latinx identity, water, blackness, Latinidad, the diaspora, and what it means to, to be all of that or to counter against that in poetry, in art, in life. And, um, you know, it's it's the reason that I personally applied for this podcast, for the Versus podcast, Roll Call, and I invited uh, my lovely friends, uh, Reina and Darel, to, to join me in this conversation because we definitely wanted to be sure that the Black Latinx experience uh, was documented in this series, and we thought it was an important and vital voice. I'm also just excited to talk about these poems because they're cool and, like, Everybody should know them, and it's a pleasure to talk about the work by these terrific poets, and it's going to be super fun to talk about it with everybody here. And also, anything that Jasmine tells me to do, I'm just going to do. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, and, Reina. And that's what we need, right? Like, I think that when we think about water, too, this movement across different spaces and connection to land and body and people, right? You... You want to say yes. You want to be in mm. connection and communion with folks. So I like that idea of these currents, of overlapping currents throughout our conversation of the poems, the experience, the experiences, and also just who we are and how we connect and build with one another. Yeah, yeah, likewise, I agree. And, you know, I think speaking of connections, our connection to each other is is varied through mostly the poetry world. But I know uh, Daryl and I have the, the connection of theater and performance and playwriting. Um, and Houston. And Houston. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, and so we, I think we've all approached or talked about Afro-Latinidad, whether it was in panels or in our work or with each other in a variety of contexts. And, and whether we're agreeing with that label that's put on us or we put it on ourselves or whether we're moving away from that particular, you know, nomer and, and label of, of our identity and ourselves and maybe even how it shows up in our own work. And so I think that, yeah, this conversation is really just a time to explore that as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe can we talk a little bit about that with regard to, to our own identities and maybe where we are or where we've come to with, with that label in particular? Yeah, you know, um, the Greater Good Commission last year, mm -hmm. which is a commission for uh, Latinx, Latine playwrights, that's put together by the Latinx Playwright Circle and the Anbregones PRTT Theater, we dedicated the first round to Afro slash Black Latinx playwrights. You know, I had this really rigorous conversation with Guadalupe del Carmen about, um, about how different people from our community identify and what the relationship with Afro-Latinx, Afro-Latine identity is um, and that word and how new that word was and now how old that word feels to some people and you know and just kind of like figuring out is it afro-indigenous is it afro-caribbean is it i mean if you're from the caribbean anyway you know like what is it that 
we can use to describe ourselves. And I was really inspired by that process because it reminded me how many different ways there are to talk about us and what an opportunity that is, you know, to really get to know our identities across a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And even in planning this episode, right, we talked a little bit about how this notion of afratinidad is a newer concept, how mm-hmm. some of our elder poets, you know, folks like even um, maybe even Willy Perdomo, right, that, that have come from a long line, a long history, perhaps, you know, haven't and maybe still don't even identify necessarily with that label, right? It's something that's much newer um, and and more prevalent now, but not necessarily that comes from or that are, that are elder poets from before would have identified with, you know, I think there was a stronger, which we're kind of leaning into a stronger connection to the nationality, right? So, you know, for example, me kind of moving away from identifying as Afro-Latina and saying I'm Black Dominican American or Afro-Dominican and sort of identifying more with the nationality. Um, and that carries sort of its problems and confusions as well, right? Um, but they do, They, I think that the Latinx label attempts in one in some ways, or even the Afro-Latinx label attempts to put us in like this monolithic, like we are this one thing. And it varies so much, even just from país to país, you know, country to country, like your Panamanian experience is different than my Dominican mm-hmm. experience. Your Puerto Rican Reina experience is different. Well, and, and thinking about that, right, of like the labeling of of generations, right? So on my father's birth certificate, for example, he is white. <laughs> and certainly that is that is not our experience as Afro-Boricua people. Mm-hmm. And thinking about how labels change over time and that identification over time. And you don't discover that until you are really rooted in your own people. And I want to connect a little bit back to like how Jasmine and I, like how we know one another is also through Canto Mundo, right? Uh, which is this home for Latinx poets. And I remember applying and being like, well, am I Latinx enough? Am I too Black? Like, <laughs> like what's going to happen in this space? Because I don't, I don't know about y'all, but like my, my elementary experience, for example, was I was the only Puerto Rican person in a school of over 800 people until my brother came, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm always the only Dominican anywhere. Pretty much like my state of being in Texas. <laughs> Well, and I think of like, what are you? Not who are you, not who your people, but what are you, right? And that being from all sides. And so this I, this ability to name ourselves and really think about what are the layers of our different identities and diaspora and how does that impact our, how does the history impact our present and our possible futures and what we're imagining into? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I really believe in slashes, right? Because the whole idea that we need one term to identify a large group of people who have some things in common, you know, but also have many differences, I think has always fundamentally been problematic. And this this goal to categorize the world is a project that will ultimately continue to fail, you know, because new identities continue to be formed every year. And I think that there's a lot of power in adding more to the list as we continue to grow and evolve as a people. I agree. But one of the things that we realized, again, in conversation, as we delve into to this topic, uh, was water connects 
us across the diaspora, right? And that was what that was the theme and some and parts of the ideas that that we felt were really uh, resonant in the poems that we're going to be talking about today, and just in our own connections with each other and with our various um, motherlands, if you will, you know, and what the water carries and and how the water carries us or has carried, you know, our ancestors in different ways. And so that's really what we want to explore today, and what I'm, you know, really excited to talk to you guys about. We had so many poems to choose from, and there were so many incredible poets. We finally narrowed it down to three. Those three are To the Sea by Aracelis Germay, Zapotec Crossers by Alan Pelais Lopez, and Hearing That Joe Arroyo Song at Ibiza Nightclub 2008 by Elizabeth Acevedo. And this piece is To the Sea by Aracelis Kermay. To the Sea, great storage house, history on which we rode, we touched the brief pulse of your fluttering pages, spelled with salt and life, your rage, your indifference, your gentleness washing our feet, all of you going on, whether or not we live. To you we bring our carnations, yellow and pink, how they float like bright sentences atop your memory's dark hair. Are we ready to talk about this poem? Yes. (laughs) To the sea? Yeah. For me, I have to note that Aristeles herself is one of these people who walks with such tenderness and emotional care that she is a being who can hold all of these these tones within one poem. And so to the sea, this great storage house, there's such possibility and openness in there. And then the light of the carnations, yellow and pink, how they float there is a tenderness in that that image of these flowers floating with brightness, like bright sentences. And yet there's also such turmoil beneath the mm-hmm. waters. It's such a tight poem. And there's so much happening within it that I think has, if you will, such bounty and beauty mm. for all the rippling mi- meanings within it. I don't know. What do y'all think about this poem? I love this poem. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I just I love that we're opening with this because, you know, really this idea of, of the sea and how we, our ancestors in some way or another were carried to these Latin American countries, right? And that's how we ended up being who we are in many ways. And and the sea is, is the way in which they got there to open with this and talk and to think about the vastness of the sea and how that, that beautiful line that says all of you going on whether or not we live, right? And you yeah. think of that that loss and that grief and that death, but it's it continues, right? The sea continues whether or mm. not, you know, we are there with it. It is. It's a storage house of so much history, right? The the bones, the the ships, the the memory that the water carries, right? All all of that. Um, and that I think even many of us feel, you know, in our bodies when we at least for me, when I get near water, it's like it's a coming home. I often feel so displaced as a military brat, as a daughter of immigrants, as someone who is a Dominican in Texas, I'm like, where do I belong? And the minute I'm near any large body of water, usually the sea is where I'm like, ah, this is home. And I think, you know, so many um, of, of our of, of our poets of 
Afro-Latinx poets from the diaspora also feel this sense of longing and connection and, and also, you know, grief in some ways with the sea, right? Because we know that so many of our ancestors died at sea and, and they're resting there. And so it's, it's this, there's this tension that exists, I think, with that body of water. I definitely feel that that sense of home whenever I'm near mm -hmm. a body of water as well. I'm from una familia canalera, as we would say in Panama, which is that my family has worked on the Panama Canal or in some mm -hmm. association with it since its construction. And actually also was a part of that. And so we have always had a connection to the canal, which unites both the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. And so I think of both oceans as my home. You know, even though I typically only experience one at a time, except when I'm in Panama, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, this idea of the sea being a great storage house of history, I think that that is where that feeling of home comes from. Because when I'm at the sea, when I'm at the ocean, when I'm at the water, I feel that history. I feel like I am witnessing history, participating in history right, by entering that storage house. Is that at all similar to how it is for you, Jasmine, when you're... Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely feel that connection to to something, you know, beyond me, before me, mm -hmm. and just really feeling, you know, yeah, at home, whether I'm in Galveston or whether I'm, you know, on the Caribbean Ocean in the Dominican Republic and, and getting my feet, you know, wet in the sand. Um, and there's just that yeah, there's that history and, there, and there's that that grounding. And for me, there's also ritual, right? The mm. offerings that we make, you know, to, to 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 the sea and the ways in which we are, we honor her, right? But um, mm -hmm. we also, you know, as my mom likes to say, la mar es traidora. And so she's, she's my mom never learned how to swim, right? Which is also part of many uh, folks from the Black diaspora, their, their history, right? And so mm -hmm. she fears the ocean. She won't go into the deep waters, you know, and I'm like, you know, I, I try to tell her, no, mom, the ocean is beautiful. She's like, it is. But she's also she's also treacherous. Right. She She's also yeah. to be feared and we have to respect her. And so I think that there's seeing the sea, right, as this this woman, this body, this living sort of breathing, aching being um, and respecting that as well. Well, and with that, we're we're all walking bodies of water. Mm. We're mostly water. Yeah. And so this idea of being in in close relationship and being at home next to water makes perfect mm -hmm, sense mm -hmm. to me of, and also this, this fear of water too, at the shore edge, the connection of water and maybe the water wants you back, wants mm -hmm. <laughs> the yeah. water within you back, right? Yeah. We're, we're bodies of water um, walking. And then I think about uh, too, um, you know, generational trauma, generational joy, what is passed down from one body of water to another when we think about um, river to or mountain uh, to river to to tributary and on right so this movement of water and how that changes how that's replicated within generations too and what's carried as uh, we keep going to that of of memory carried in the water Toni Morrison gave us that that wisdom and it's echoed again here so I hear this this replication this echoing and it's like truth and truth and truth. And it's it's also the ebb and flow of, of the water. It's the ebb and flow of the ocean, right? All mm. of this truth in that. Your comment has me zeroing in on these lines, your rage, your indifference, your gentleness, washing our feet. 
rage, gentleness, yeah. rage, gentleness, that dichotomy is so powerful and so important. I find those I find those feelings within myself, you know, especially when people ask me to to talk about or think about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, identity, right? And and our and our history as a people, you know, there is that rage, but there's also an indifference, and there's also gentleness, you know. And I think that this poem does such a good job capturing that, you know, pointing out how the sea is that and those things but then also giving us an opportunity to think of those things as it relates to life beyond the sea, right? As it relates mm -hmm. to us individually, right? And our own identities and relationship to it. Mm -hmm. So that those lines in particular stand out to me. And I love too what she's doing, like as a writer, you know, we get back to to being writers and, and writers from the Black Latinx diaspora. She's also got this other sort of metaphor mm -hmm. happening with pages spelled bright sentences atop your memories dark here. So there's like this writing of history and this writing and this this memory related to perhaps even language, right? Um, and the ways in which we speak or communicate and the ways in which the sea is speaking to us or has things to say as well. And and yet the counter narrative to that, that uh, cementing of a focus on the word, right? The sentences are atop the water, right? The, the pages are in the water, in the sea. And so it's it's pushing back on the idea that knowledge can only rest in the book and the word in the in the print, right? And saying that it's here. It's just look at it, touch it. It's it's a part of you and in relationship to you. Yeah. And at the top we have history, but we end with yeah. memory. Yes. And so I like this question that you're posing, Raina, or implying, which is, is history that which is just written in the page mm -hmm. or is history that which is embodied in the water, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that is carried and passed down and is remembered. Yeah. Um, and it's collective and it's, because of the we, mm -hmm. we live, we bring, there's that collective mm -hmm. memory kind of echoing there. Mm -hmm. And thinking about movement, right? Like all this movement on that water conjures for me, you know, migration. And, mm -hmm. and of course, Araceli's is, is speaking to this this constant relationship and grief in this in this poem and and I think that that's also a commonality with some of the thing the poems that we chose of like that that longing um, that grieving and again a, a wide range of emotional timbre if you will um, that can be held in in very short poems. Is there something subversive that's happening? In this poem, I'm thinking especially as it relates to archive. Mm. Mm, for sure. Absolutely. Like it's defiant of the solidification of archive in a particular building or structure or, or even so paper on, or just the mm -hmm. physicality yeah. of it. Right. Yeah, I think so. Don't we all want to be submersive, subversive, submersive, <laughs> submersive, submersive, yeah, yeah. <laughs> play on words there. Nice. I love yeah. it. I love it. Submersive, subversive poets. Yeah. It's the name no. of a series. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. And Raina, you mentioned this idea, right, of, of looking at, um, you know, the water also being that, you know, we know it's also sort of the vehicle for, for slavery, but thinking about it as um, as we view immigration, right? Um, and one of the questions we considered, right, when looking at, at a lot of this work is, you know, we all, for the most part, are, are products of or have some background related to our, our people being immigrants. And and how has that perhaps 
change the way that we view blackness or that blackness is is looked at, you know, in particular, you know, here in the United States, for example, right? Because um, I think obviously it varies from country to country in Latin America. Um, and I struggle with that question because I feel like there is sometimes a resistance to accepting blackness outside of the African-American sort of presumed monolithic experience and saying like, there's more than one way to be black. And clearly like we, we show that. And so I don't know what, if you all had have thoughts on that um, or experiences. Well, I've started to rethink the way that I have configured diaspora in my head. When I was in London, um, they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Windrush generation a few years ago. And they are a generation of all sorts of people um, from the West Indies who migrated to London about 50 years ago um, under a particular visa and under particular circumstances. And um, there's a huge Caribbean legacy in London as a result of that, and um, this this idea that there's a West Indian diaspora, uh, and a lot of my ancestors, not all of them, but a lot of my ancestors came to Panama from the West Indies to build the Panama Canal and then stayed to operate it, you know, et cetera, as the years went on. And like, what does that mean about my blackness as it, you know, in terms of let's like Caribbean herit heritage, um, you know, central, American heritage is very much tied to the Spanish colonial history, but my West Indian side is obviously tied to a more, you know, British history, you know, but there's that overlap in terms of the blackness, the Africanness, right, on, on both sides, if you will. And it has me thinking a little bit more about Caribbean diaspora in particular, and like Black Caribbean diaspora or Afro-Caribbean diaspora in the United States. You see this so much in New York in particular and, and how that's different, you know, in interesting, lovely and beautiful ways from other kinds of Afro-ness, Blackness mm -hmm. from throughout Latin America, Yeah, you know? And, and so I think a part of me saw that there were African-Americans and obviously I know there are Afro-Latinos, Afro-Latinx people, um, and there are Afro-Europeans, but now I'm really kind of like how you, how we were talking about at the top of the podcast, really thinking like about breaking that up more, fragmenting that yeah. even more and just think about like, what does it mean to be Afro-Centro-Americano? What does it mean to be, you know, Black Caribbean? What does it mean to be all of these different, uh, like, if you want to call them subcategories yeah, nuances or and just very nuances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Layers for sure. And I think about um, the, the stories that we carry from our peoples around migration as well. And, you know, my, my grandfather was a merchant Marine. So you know, an Afro Boricua person traveling all over the world in the 1940s and fifties and perceived very differently depending on where he was in the world. And when my grandmother, who was a very fair-skinned woman with strawberry blonde hair, comes to the States on the Marine Tiger, <laughs> as many Puerto Ricans did at that time, and he was like, you don't understand. The way that people perceive us as a partnership, as a married couple, will be very different in the States, like in New York, even in New York, than it is in Puerto Rico, right? And and the way that we can relate to one another will be vastly different 
than what what home was as much as there was colorism and all sorts of like racism and internalized racism and all sorts of things right in their experience and then coming here in the late 40s and you know at that point their relationship their marriage they, they it wasn't legal <laughs> for them to be partnered right and then for my grandmother like i never asked her about what it was to also be a perceived one way in with um, the shield of whiteness and your children are perceived a very different way. No, yeah, I well, it's, you know, something that I think about often, you know, with my own daughter, Luz Maria, like I think about like, I never really mentally prepared myself to raise a non-Black child. And so it's, it's sort of this interesting, like conversation that I'm constantly having in my head about, you know, how do I make sure she's, you know, an ally, right, for lack of a better word, or just empathetic, and really, you know, it doesn't sort of fall into like anti-blackness or racism or colorism and all the things that potentially can infiltrate, right? Her little, her little psyche, her little brain, and her little perception and understanding of the world. And and interestingly too, I wanted to mention, Reina, you mentioned at the at the top that the birth certificate, I think, of your of your grandfather. And I recently, my parents um, of my father, of whatever, my father, your father. Okay, well, so even more bizarre because I was born in 1984, so even more current. My birth certificate literally has both of my parents listed as Hispanic, and it's it's at 19 and it's. And I was born in Alabama, and my my father is a visibly black man, visibly black Dominican man. But both of them, as it says, color or race mm. on those, you know, on those older birth certificates, and it's listed as Hispanic. So if we go by just the archive, you know, circling back to this idea of the archive, and you know nothing else about me, and I didn't have poems, and there were no pictures of me, and you know, my great great granddaughters dig up this birth certificate. To them, I'm Hispanic, and there's no, you know, there's no lineage, there's no history no understanding that I am, that I identify and that I am a black woman, right? From, from the Dominican Republic. That's just a reminder to me about how identity is constructed. Yes. You mm. know, and mm. how in some countries you had, you were defined by a one drop of mm -hmm. your right. African heritage um, or African blood. And in another country, you're defined by your, a one drop of European blood. Right. So mm -hmm. if you had any answer, any ancestor that was white, you could claim that you're not black mm -hmm. or anything else. Right. You could claim whiteness and how that bringing all of the, the all of those histories together when people migrate is really confusing and can cause a lot of conflict and long conversations. Yes, <laughs> conversations that I don't humor anymore. I'm just like, listen, I just, I ain't got time. Yeah, well, and, and speaking of, of this idea of um, Afro and indigeneity, um, I'd love to, to listen uh, and take a peek at uh, Alan's yeah, work. for sure. And we can talk a little bit about the nuances and layers of, of their work as well. And this piece is Zapotec Crossers or Haiku I Write Post-PTSD Nightmares by Alan Pelaez Lopez. And I will be reading Zapotec Crossers or Haiku I Write Post-PTSD Nightmares. One, waves smack the body. Nayeli, seven, drowning. Spring, crossing season. Two, Summer indicates the migration will be safe. Jesusen, three, sprints. Three, Indajani, one, knows to crawl under the fence 
She was trained all fall. Four. At 4 a.m., Yao, 12, is sewn inside car seat. Winter will protect. Five. Itzel, 5, placed dead. Border Patrol agents see her body. They leave. I, I think this poem is fascinating, Zapotec Crossers, and I am so excited to have discovered Alain's work recently. I think it's so powerful how it opens. Waves smack the body. That line not only opens the stanza, right, but it also sends us into motion across the entire poem. And so as the waves smack that body, it also pushes us all the way through the poem. And it's, it really is, I mean, the, the weight of, of what this poem is able to do in, you know, those three lines, right? There's five haiku, they're each only, obviously, you know, three lines, and yet there's, there's so much just depth and weight and, and even the trauma, you can feel it, right, occurring with each one of these individuals that that are being named and that are um that have gone through this experience and you know i was i was really intrigued by the use of obviously of the seasons right when the spring the crossing season the summer indicates migration will be safe but then right she was trained all fall winter will protect we're going through the the seasons mm-hmm. right of 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 life and of the year and yet it's it's layered just each one, right? So darkly and, you know, in, in many ways. Yeah, this poem, I think, is so important because it looks at the relationship between minors mm-hmm. and water, right? Especially thinking about crossing and what that particular kind of migration experience is like for so many, you know, millions that not only cross mm-hmm. US borders or borders throughout the continents of America, but also people who are crossing borders worldwide, right? Children yeah. are a huge part of the migration crisis that's happening globally as uh, you know, the world goes through so many changes, yeah. Yeah, that, that often gets so overlooked, I think, in the media, right? We, we often, the, the image or the picture that we see of the quote unquote immigrant or undocumented immigrant is not often of a black immigrant or a black Latinx immigrant. Um, and yet so many of them are, right? Black immigrants or, um, you know, even black Haitians, right? That, that, that are in that situation. Uh, and I think it's, this poem, I think, speaks to many levels and layers of, of all of that as well. Well, and as the climate continues to change and not just be a change, a crisis and a, an active destruction of our world, there will be more and more and more migration of people who have no other option, right? The sea is rising. And thinking about this, you know, we keep coming back to water, right? This water smacks the body, mm-hmm. right? This is not an opportunity of communion, of like <laughs> meeting no. and homecoming and, you know, holding of history and memory. And it's a violence, and, right? It's yeah. a violence. It's a violent act. It's a violence. And what do y'all think about how Alana is using the haiku form yes. and the choice to use haiku here? There's I, so much, right? Like yeah. three lines. I commend them because I can't, I, you know, to write a really well-written haiku that really packs 
that sort of tension and energy and just the emotional weight of what you're trying to say is difficult. And I think that they do an amazing job. I mean, and to carry that as a sequence of haiku, right? Yes. And to carry us through the entire time with these seasons. And for me, the last haiku where the season isn't as as prevalent, right? We don't have the the, the season word that we are being um, drawn to to pay attention to throughout the other ones. And yet they leave. That leave for me has leaves in it. It has um, motion. It has a holder for all these seasons as well as a holder for a spirit, a kind of season mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and a killing season. Like a place dead. Yeah. Place dead. <laughs> right. There's so yeah. there's so much in that last sta- stanza, that last haiku of a new kind of season, a, a terrible kind of season. And it's fascinating also how verbs are used in this poem mm. because it speaks to the agency of the of the characters, um, but it's also puts them in situations where um, the, their own agency is really not necessarily saving them, like Nayeli is drowning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Itzel plays dead. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and then ultimately dies at the end of that last stanza. And so it's interesting to think about power, you know, and how that's represented here through the choice in verbs and what the characters in each of the stanzas are are doing. Right. Yeah. And there's so many big stories beyond the, the stanzas. Um, so like. Irajani, right? One knows to crawl under the fence. She was trained all fall. By whom? What's mm. the larger studer story here? And both Jasmine and I are mothers of very young children. My daughter just turned one. The idea of that constant act to train your child to do something right, right. that will save their lives, potentially. And it'll be a massive change in their lives. But this child is one. Like, that mother experience that is my lived experience sh- shakes me to the core when I'm reading this, this yeah. stanza, like the, yeah. the constant work of that. Yeah, no, for sure. Echoing that, I think just for, you know, by no means any kind of comparison, but I freak out just when I'm in a parking lot with Luce and I've got to put groceries somewhere and she's next to me and I'm like, stay right there. Like I've trained her to just not right. move because I'm terrified that a car, or, you know, and so can't, I can't even imagine what, what you have to be going through, right. In order to, for that to be the conversation, right? How do you, how you train, you know, this one-year-old? I've always thought that it's fascinating how kids learn to crawl. You know, that's always something I'm in marvel of. And it's such an accomplishment when they mm-hmm. do learn to crawl, right? Uh, because it's the first step in their, in, in their, help me, you guys. Help Mobility, me. movement. Mobility, <laughs> but also their extension of their whole world happens. Yes, yeah. thank you. They start to discover right. and explore yeah. more. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, but it's fascinating that here, it's not necessarily this like joyous, like, oh, okay, great. You're on that journey moment. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, you're using this maybe for your own survival at one, which mm-hmm. is quite a lot of pressure to put on a one-year-old's activities. Yeah. And it's similar to itself at five playing dead. Yeah, there's that juxtaposition there. You're playing mm-hmm. it dead, which kids do. Like my kid does that, right? Playing that they're yes. injured, playing that they're sick. Yeah. But there's right. much more of a reality to this, a survival mechanism. Yes. 
right? Yeah. And then the choice of smack in the first mm -hmm. line also is interesting. I do think that in general, it's a little bit more um, that there is some obvious violence in the mm -hmm. word, but you could also smack someone in a playful way. And so there is that there is that double-sidedness mm -hmm. here as mm -hmm. well. Alan is mm -hmm. definitely yes. a swordsmith. Yeah, yeah. And, and going even to the car seat, right? Ideally, the car seat is what's supposed to protect. And in this case, the winter will protect. And we think of the car seat mm. as this place that is supposed to be safe. It's intended to keep our children safe. And yet somehow it's Yao is sewn inside car seat. And so that's that's also an interesting verb, right? Uh -huh. Being sewn into it. And this idea that the winter is what will will protect uh, said child and not mm -hmm. the car seat. And, and maybe this car seat is, is more, again, a side of violence um, and not safety, right? Kind of the opposite of that. Um, and I think of when, when I read that, I think of the, um, the Greyhound buses that actually were full of car seats that were supplied by um, some big name brand. Um, and it was just really sort of harrowing for me to see that that image on the news that it was this giant Greyhound bus full of car seats for children that had been, you know, that had crossed the border. And it was just like, Holy cow, you know, that that was just something that was really powerful to me, impactful. Yeah. And time. Yeah. Thinking about like I I think about the work of um folks who who draw from document, right? Who draw from newspaper and and say that the story, this one little line here is is worthy of of much more focus and treatment. And I see echoes of that here of like the names of these children whether they are the real names of these children or or not, but naming is important and the age of these children is important and tracking this movement and the trauma, which is also con like haiku I wrote post PTSD nightmares. This is a personal connection, the title, right? So this is not just like looking at the news. This is like the speaker has taken this poem and there's such vulnerability and fragility right. and and also a steeliness because the the telling of it right it's not it's not living just in the nightmare it's actually on the pages here and and the, then I go back to right to Araceli's right the resistance of the page and also the subversiveness of couching this within the haiku within the natural world so um being in connection of like it is unnatural to be so traumatized by mm. movement that is unnatural and yet there are these people and these bodies who are moving and these stories and these children and we should pay attention thinking about what you're saying reina and the newspaper the line what we focus on i can't help but also mm. think about the work that araceli's is doing in to the yeah. sea I'm thinking yes. about ocean as archive. What connections do you see here between Araceli's poem and Alan's poem in that vein? I see like see the land as archive also, right? This this idea of what are borders and these arbitrary lines in the sand, right? As as some have often called them and and how we move across them, but the the land itself, right? The water carries history, but I think our, you know, the physical land that, that we are on or choose mm -hmm. to, to move across also carries this history. And and where we as as our bodies reside in each in each place tends to to also have memory and history and, and be a kind of archive, right? Because our bodies are, especially as as yes. as, as black individuals, are treated differently depending on where we are. 
right? Um, and I think that that's also something to consider and how that's living. Yeah, I, I, I love how we've also shifted a lot of our conversation to thinking about water in connection to the body and an embodied mm -hmm. experience, right? Like the vibration of body, how we are perceived, how we walk in the world, how um, how we own the strut <laughs> of our own bodies, how we maneuver within spaces and that coming through in all these different readings of yeah. the poems. Mm. And I think when we talk about Elizabeth's work, that will come back yeah. again, right? Um, in music yeah. and dance, right? Yeah, and moving a little from, <laughs> from you know, the, the trauma to the joy, I think, as well. And this piece is Hearing That Joe Arroyo Song at Ibiza Nightclub 2008 by Elizabeth Acevedo. 2008. A boy I did not marry taught me to dance salsa on two placed the fingers of his left hand on my untutored spine. You know what it's like to become someone's clave, to love for the span of the trombone's long breath. He whispered, So I spun, my heart landing on the rum-covered linoleum of a nightclub on what used to be New York Ave and what used to be Chocolate City. I let him turn and spin my name, Bella Negra. His hands were less tender, but still I let them roam. When I, one, two, three, five, six, seven, in front of my mirror, I was always La Negra defended in the lyric. And you can forgive searching hands when a mouth swells the biggest ache of your body into song. Yeah, oh, I, just had to, yes, <laughs> I, I need like a cold shower sigh. after that. <laughs> that's sad. Oh, I just had to sigh. You know, yeah. I, I love Elizabeth's work, oh. and I've for years. Canto Mundo also. Elizabeth Acevedo. Canto Mundo represent. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, for those who may not know uh, the Joe Arroyo song, it's, it's Esclavitud Perpetua. Well, La Rebelión, actually, is, is the title of the song by Joe Arroyo. Uh, Esclavitud Perpetua. Pam, pam, pam. Yeah, um, I have I have a poem uh, after this song actually, and I feel like yes. almost yes, it's a fantastic poem. Yes, oh, thank you. No, I uh, I think that most of us have. I don't know. I'm just gonna speak for myself. I have this moment also that Elizabeth has right on the dance floor with this song, where the moment where you actually listen to the lyrics and you realize yeah. that this is about you know what this song is about, right? And and this this slave master everybody and does. and everybody and does. The, the, the the man that comes to defend you know his woman it, ah like just it's your and it's what's interesting about about that song and, and I, you know talk about the poem as well but you're dancing salsa and you're having a good time and yet there's this this narrative right that's happening at the same time and so this interesting sort of juxtaposition right that you're that you're in um, but several times I've cried while listening to the song and on the dance floor and dancing salsa and just kind of you know, I, I felt the the spirits in my body. I felt the ancestors there with me. And it's it's a powerful piece, both this poem and the original song. When I was in college, I had a friend named Clementina, and we were part of a big salsa group that would go, you know, to dance salsa at Taco, Taco, no, was it Taco Milagro? Taco Milagro! Is... 
it's a Houston. It's no longer there, gentrification. Uh-huh. But yes, yes. <laughs> that was the spot. That was the spot. <laughs> that was the spot. Taco Milagro. I love that you're bringing to life this spot, right? Like, if you didn't know, now you know. It's no longer there. Yes, yes. And, you know, amongst all of my compinche, mm. uh, amongst all of my friends, um, Clementina was the only other <laughs> Afro-Black Latinx person. And whenever this song would come on, <laughs> it didn't matter who we were dancing to, dancing with. Yes. We would say, hold on a second, I'll be right back. And we would find each other and just kill it and just kill it to the song because it is just so powerful and it's about history in a way that I think is like invigorating and passionate and important. So I'm so thrilled that Elizabeth wrote a poem about this song and, and her experience about dancing it, dancing to it in the club because is I think for many of us a transformative moment, right? That is marked in our memories. And then I think so many um, folks in, in the United States, I will just say, don't really know or remember or have been taught the history of the fact that like slavery didn't just happen in the United States of America. And that's so many of, right. you know, people always ask me like, well, how, how are you black and Latina and how do you speak Spanish? And I'm like, hey, my people's boat just stopped you know, one one place before yours did. So that's how that happened, you know. And um, also, please Google before you come and ask me, <laughs> yes, because yes, the information just... is out there. <laughs> it's out there. Yeah. Google is real. <laughs> or if you are going to ask, there should be a consultant fee, right? Like, oh, I have this question, and, but I'm going to give you three hundred dollars. Can you just answer this one little question? Yeah. Just what thirty? Yeah. No, when people ask, like, I. That's a good rate. I, I just give answer. the one word answer. I'm always like slavery, and I just keep it moving. I'm just like, <laughs> like how do you speak Spanish? Slavery. Just, you know. <laughs> I, one of the things I love about this poem is that we're in the club and we're also in the mirror. Uh, we're in a home space in this, in this poem. It's very tight. And, you know, when I, one, two, three, five, six, seven, in front of my mirror, right? That there's this back and forth of the vibrancy and the connection of the mm-hmm. song and sound across these different spaces. And yeah. it's also really rooted in in history and calling attention to, you know, what used to be near, mm-hmm. near gallery, mm-hmm. what used to be Chocolate City. And like bringing this to mind, yeah. ah, what used to be, what the history in the song and bringing that to life all while um, bringing you know, bringing such bounty in the line, like, Ugh. you know what it's like to become someone's plumber. I, I want it. Don't, yeah. don't we all yeah. want on that? Okay. When a mouth da, swells da, the biggest da, ache of your da, body. Da, okay. I, I felt all that right. in the biggest ache of my body. <laughs> this is a very sexy. Ooh. Yeah. This is a sexy poem. This is a sexy poem. Well, and for me, what stood out is I love the way that she really reclaims the word negra, right? So he whispered mm-hmm, negra, mm-hmm. my name, Bella Negra. I was always La Negra, defended in the lyric, you know? And because that, that, depending on who says it and in what context, can either be a beautiful, loving thing or, you know, esa negra can be derogatory, right? And so, you know, I, th- I think that the way that she reclaims that word and really, for lack of a better word, makes it sing on the page as well as, you know, it makes it ha- own its power, carry the power that it has is just really well done. I um, mean, it's, it's a mm. line that's repeated in the song as well. No le pega la negra, la negra, which is something that when I was looking at the poem myself, um, at the, sorry, the song lyrics myself, um, it was interesting to me the, how it says, 
in the song, which is something that I kind of wanted to break apart at one point, was la negra, la negra, mi negra. And, and so there's also still that ownership of the woman in that song, um, even by the, the, you know, the beloved who's trying to protect her and, and all of that. And so it's always interesting to, to think about, right? And these two things are in conversation with one another. Like, it's, it's in the title, like, check out this song. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I think there is this invitation to have both things side by side, the lyrics as poem, this poem as poem, song, talking to one another um, and being alive in that way um, so that we too are invited into the dance. We're invited into the song. We're invited into the beauty that is protected. So Yeah. And what you're saying makes me think a lot about audience, because when in the first stanza, she says, you you know what it's yeah. like to become someone's clave. Oh, do you want to read that again? <laughs> you know what it's like to become someone's clave. Oh, done. Done. Uh, well, it, it says to the audience, come to the dance floor, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it also speaks to people who know without excluding people who don't. Yes, that that beginning. Oh, wow. Okay. Because it also speaks right to the layers of like, as a Latina woman, who you dance with and how, and what does that say about you, right? Sort of all of those those different complex and conflicting layers um, of, of womanhood, of, of negritud, of being a negra, and, and all of that, right? Well, do you think that's connected to the last, the, the penultimate stanza where she says, and you can forgive searching hands when a mouth swells the biggest ache of your body into song? I think so. Yeah, because there's there's that permission to touch or, or, or non-permission, right? And depending on uh -huh. who's allowed to touch you based on your marital status or who you know who you're with and that kind of a thing. Yeah, no, I do. I think it, it circles back to that. Well, and I, I think that, Jasmine, you pointing, um, calling attention to the reclaiming of Negra um, as well, like, when a mouth swells the biggest ache of your body, right? Like how one can be called negra in very different ways. And this mouth is, and these roaming hands, oh, you can forgive them. And this mouth is is, is reclaiming, allowing you to reclaim this beauty. And, this, yeah. um, and even before um, his hands were less tender, yeah. but still I let them roam, right? So there's that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For us in our conversation of water, the mouth swells. Swells is such a sort of water driven yeah. <laughs> word yeah. as well, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and so mm -hmm. that coming back to that, I think. And so this poem for me articulates some of the history mm -hmm. that is in Araceli's ocean, right? Yes. That's in her sea. And that is in the stories that Alana is also telling, it is, I, I see a connection here. It's like the history that they're both gesturing to is in conversation with the history of, of in this yeah. poem as well and in the Joe yeah. Arroyo oh, song. Oh, for sure, for sure. That history of where we come from, how we came from the water, but, you know, the India, the transla transatlantic slave trade, you know, all, all of that happening, right? And then also the reclaiming of our own bodies, of our own experiences, um, and trying to be in that power mm -hmm. Um, wherever we can. Right. And yes, exactly. Like that, that power of, you know, the, the larger structures, the historical structures would say marginalize, would control, would take away, would strip away. And, and all three are in this space of like holding a lot. There's grief, there's longing, mm -hmm. there's, there's trauma, there's history, there's like all these different layers. And ultimately there's still the power to tell the story. There's still the power in that. And I think that what this what this poem too does so well is this idea of finding joy and celebrating 
right? And and Joy being radical, right? And that our that our that she's a bella negra. She's a beautiful black woman, right? And there is joy and power um, in that, right? In that, and and to see yourself. Right. For, for many black women, you know, I'll say for myself to see yourself as beautiful, which is counter to the narrative that you kind of grow up hearing in, in many places and in many ways. Um, that is radical. That is that is a very radical thing to just say, no, F y'all like I'm beautiful, you know, and I'm here to take up space. And this is my name. <laughs> this is my name. That's my name. I, I am the beautiful name. black woman. Bella Negra. That's sure. my name. OK, call my name. So if we were to to think about the water and all that the water does carry. The one thing that we haven't done is mention more names, more people that folks should read. So I know Jasmine, you mentioned Willy Perdomo before. I would mention Aya de Leon and Thea Matthews. Are there other names that we're like, okay, we talked about these three poems and these three poets, but like y'all should have a syllabus. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, Yesenia yes. Montilla, Tato Laviera, Malcolm Friend, Tato Laviera, Roberto C. Garcia, Ariana Brown, Jean Murillo, Dea Matthews, Roberto Garcia, Maria Fernanda, of course, mm-hmm. Kyle Lopez, Jennifer Maritza McCauley. There's so many incredible, incredible writers, um, Afro Latinx mm-hmm. across the diaspora, and some folks who claim it claim that that term and some who push against it right and wh- wherever people are in those slashes of identity yeah. that yeah. Terrell like pointed out to us earlier still calls attention to, still says read still says learn include mm-hmm. and and actively include center yeah and I, and I think what what the water teaches us with all of this whether it's our syllabus our own writing our identity is this idea of fluidity Right. And that is it is in constant flux and is in in constant change and transformation um, and that Mm -hmm. the water gives and it takes. And I think we should allow ourselves right to to give and take and to be fluid with those terms, with the with how we identify with how we are in one space one day and in another space the next and how we take up space. And I think that that for me, that's really um, one of the the lessons of, of the water uh, and what it carries and what it can teach us. And we don't have to battle about it. We can just trust that we can ebb and flow and change. Find find the flow. Find the flow, flow. and then go with the flow. Go with the flow. <laughs> yeah. Go with the flow. Be like water. Be like, Be like water. water. Yes. This is Daryl. This is Jasmine. This is Raina. And we will see you soon.